Thank you for inviting me to speak to you today. I'd much rather be with you in person, but I hope that doing it this way works for you. For those of you who don't know me or any of you who don't know me, I'm Greg Whittick from Tadley, Community Church Tadley. Uh, we're going to look today at the final chapter of the book of Daniel, chapter 12. Daniel's one of the most difficult books in the Bible, so congratulations to everybody in the hub for making it this far and getting to the end of it. As we read it in Tadley several years ago, we concluded that the big question Daniel asks is who's in charge of history, to which Daniel's resounding answer is God is. And we also saw, among other things, something of what it means to live faithfully in a hostile culture. We saw something of the place of prayer, we saw something about living a life of lifelong fruitfulness. And we saw something about God working in remarkable ways in the lives and through the lives of those who are faithful to him. So as we come to the end of this remarkable book, we join a very elderly Daniel on the banks of the river Tigris, where he's been listening to what appear to be a couple of heavenly beings, probably angels, but the text doesn't actually tell us precisely who they are. By this time, Daniel is an old man, probably in his 80s. The beginning of chapter 10 tells us that it's the third year of the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, or modern day Iran. Daniel's been living in exile in Babylon and its successor kingdoms now for over 70 years, with many, along with many of God's people. Two or three years previously, according to Ezra chapter one, about 46,000 men plus women, as well as their children and servants, returned to Jerusalem to begin the work of rebuilding the temple. We're not told why Daniel didn't return with them, but I suspect his age might have been a factor. But God continues to speak to him in this vision as he stands on the banks of the Tigris, after a period of prayer and fasting. I suspect he'd probably been praying and fasting for what was going on in Jerusalem. Uh, and he's still engaged in what God's doing, even though he's not able to be presently, uh, physically present with those in Jerusalem who are working to rebuild the temple and reestablish their life as God's people there. You'll remember that in chapter 11, an angel explained to Daniel what's to come in the future and actually gave him an account of national and international developments, which connect uncannily precisely to the way that history actually worked out. Now, I know there's a lot of debate about that, but it's a, a remarkably accurate piece of prophetic writing. At the beginning of chapter 12, we join him as one of the heavenly beings who's been standing above the river, finishes speaking. And this is what this heavenly being says. And it's then followed by some, some words from Daniel. So I'm starting at verse one of chapter 12, if you're reading in the Bible. So this is the heavenly being speaking. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as hasn't happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise 
will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and I heard him swear by him who lives forever saying it will be for a time times and half a time when the power of the holy people has been finally broken all these things will be completed i heard but i didn't understand so i asked my lord what will be the outcome of all this he replied go your way daniel because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end many will be purified made spotless and refined but the wicked will continue to be wicked none of the wicked will understand but those who are wise will understand from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up there will be 1290 days Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As you go, as for you, go your way till the end. You will rest and then at the end of the days you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Now I'm not going to try and go into some of the really detailed stuff that we come across in this passage. What I'm going to try and do is to draw from it. What does this mean for us? In Daniel 12 verses 1 to 4, so the first four verses of this chapter, having seen in chapter 11 that God's people will face ferocious opposition, we begin to see the development of a new theme. Those who are faithful to God and who endure until the end will be resurrected and enjoy eternal life. Let's see how this comes out. So in verse one, we're told that there'll be a time of terrible distress of an order that has never been seen previously. But we're told all those whose names are written in the book will be delivered. This theme of a book of life recurs in scripture, particularly, pardon me, in the New Testament. Verse two tells us that multitudes of those who've died will rise some to everlasting life, others to shame and contempt. This is the only explicit reference in the Old Testament to bodily resurrection and is therefore the first clear re reference to at least physical resurrection in the Bible. Daniel's vision of the future then comes to an end and he's told to roll up and to seal the scroll till the end. It's interesting that in Revelation, we see scrolls having their seals broken and being unrolled. The only one found worthy to open the scroll and break the seals is the lamb seated on the throne, Jesus. That is surely an echo back to this passage. What's sealed up here 
is unsealed in the book of Revelation. In verse five, he then sees two figures, one on each side of the river and another clothed in linen above the water. That suggests that he at least, the one above the water, was a heavenly being of some sort. One of the men asks him, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? And we then get one of those answers that crop up in apocalyptic literature, where the man clothed, it says in verse seven, the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying it will be for a time, times and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. To break this down a bit, the man swears a solemn oath, firstly, that it will be for a time, times or two times and half a time. He also says that it will be when the power of the holy people has finally been broken. That's not how we've become accustomed to think of things. We've often tended to have a rather more triumphal approach to these things. But it says here that the power of the holy people will finally be broken. It's also worth saying, though, that this precise amount of time that's mentioned, the time times and half a time or the 1290 days, does mean that the time of suffering that he's talking about will be limited, that God has control over how long it will last and that he has imposed limits and boundaries on how long that time of distress and suffering will be. I'm not quite sure I understand it fully, but fortunately, nor does Daniel. And he asks in verse eight what the outcome of all this will be. And he's basically told to go on his way. In other words, it's not for him to know. The words have been sealed up until the time of the end. I find that quite encouraging. Daniel didn't fully understand all this himself, so I'm not going to get too upset if I don't. And then in verse 11, we're told that from the time uh, Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus IV abolishes the daily sacrifice until the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days or three years and a month on a 360 day calendar. Antiochus, we know from history, set up an altar to Zeus over the altar of burnt offering in the Temple of Jerusalem, having previously abolished the regular sacrifices. And although there's a lot of debate, most, most of the commentators would say that that is what's referred to as the, the abomination of desolation. Very next verse, however, pronounced is a blessing on the one who waits or perseveres until the end of the 1,335 days. I'm not going to try and explain away the difference between the 1,290 and the 1,335. I'm quite sure that the writer was aware of that as they come in successive sentences. But many people have earned a living from writing books about this. And I really don't think anyone knows precisely what it means. I personally think we have to accept that the numbers used in apocalyptic literature are symbolic rather than exact amounts of time. But I think it's clear that this time of suffering will be limited. Three and a half times is half of the perfect time, seven times. So 
what what I take from this is that this time times and half a time means that God has actually imposed boundaries and limits on the duration of this time of distress that this packet passage is talking about. If that's the case, that means that God in his sovereignty has control over how long this suffering of his people can last for. Um, and I find that immensely reassuring and encouraging, actually. Then there's a final promise to an elderly Daniel in verse 13 that he is to go away and rest, which is probably a euphemism for die, and a promise that at the end he will rise to receive his inheritance. What an incredible and fitting promise for a man who's lived through 70 plus years of exile in a foreign land through the reigns of a number of kings, remaining faithful to God in all of it, while looking forward to a time and praying actively for a time when God's kingdom will come in all its fullness. This is a man who has resisted kings, seen kings come and go, seen the most powerful man on earth end up eating grass, seen another powerful king suddenly struck down overnight. Daniel had seen all sorts of amazing things. And this promise to him at the end of this faithful life is that he will rise and receive his inheritance. So let's see what we can glean from this passage, shall we, for our own times. Um, I've got four headings here. They all begin with R. Those of you who know me will be pleased to know, but there's a certain amount of um, jiggery-pokery involved in getting them all to begin with R. So the first of these R's is that of resurrection. This passage assures us of resurrection. Daniel is explicitly told in this final verse of the chapter Sorry, told this in the final verse of the chapter. We don't often talk about the resurrection of the dead, but it is clear from scripture, to me anyway, that we will be resurrected bodily, not to some sort of ethereal spiritual spirit existence, but a physical resurrection. Um, and this passage in, is unusual in the Old Testament in that it points towards that. Now, some will argue that that's not how it was understood at the time, but it's certainly how it was understood by the, or certainly, it's certainly how at least the Pharisees understood it by the time of Jesus. And it's how Christians down through the ages have tended to understand it as well. So there's an assurance here of resurrection uh, and resurrection and reward. Actually, that could have been another R, couldn't it? The second R, so the first one is resurrection. The second one is the return of Jesus. Now, I know this passage doesn't explicitly mention Jesus, but I actually think the connection between this passage and the back end of Revelation, Revelation 20 and 21, does point us and orient us towards the return of the Lord Jesus. The events that chapter 12 describes, the resurrection, the judgment and eternal life are all associated in the New Testament with the return of the Lord Jesus. The book of Daniel closes by looking forward to the climactic event of history, the return of the Lord Jesus to this world in glory, to rule and to reign. It points us forward to Revelation 20 
and 21, the time when Jesus returns. The language and the imagery of parts of chapter 12 are very similar to that of the end of the book of Revelation. We don't have time to go into it this morning, but if you if you want to do a lockdown, we're not quite in lockdown now, are we? But if you want to do a sort of semi-lockdown exercise in Bible study, just go and compare the language and the imagery of this latter part of Daniel, chapters 10 through to 12, with that those in the end part of the book of Revelation, 20 to 22. Jesus will return to this earth in glory. And this is probably the first hint in our Bible of what it will look like when that happens. So we've seen something in this passage about the resurrection. We've seen something in this passage about the return of Jesus, I would argue. I know others probably would disagree with me. We also see a third R, which is reassurance to those who persevere. The chapter opened with it. But it, it is clear from this passage that there is a reward for those who are faithful. Throughout the book of Daniel, we've seen these remarkable deliverances of those who are faithful to God, um, whether it's the lion's den, the fiery furnace, or just the very fact that Daniel survives through these various kings coming and going. And he's the one consistent factor. So there is a reassurance in this passage to those who persevere that their faithfulness will be rewarded. I think we at the moment have been living through a year when in many ways our afflictions probably bear little connection to those that this passage is talking about. And certainly uh, I haven't been thrown into a fiery furnace or a, lion, a lion's den in the last year, but there is still a temptation not to persevere when we face the sort of situations we have faced over the last year. But this passage tells us that there is a reward for those who are faithful, that actually we have an inheritance in eternal life uh, if we persevere to the end. And then my final R. So we've had resurrection, the return of Jesus and a reward or re reassurance for those who persevere. The final one that I just want to mention, and I've called it the restraining hand of God, it's probably more than just a restraining hand of God. I think we see something of God's sovereignty in this passage, God's sovereignty over the events of history. We we see, first of all, him limiting this time of distress for his people. Maximum, we're told, of 1,290 days or a time times and half a time or 1,355 days, whichever of those three you want to take. But what we do see, the very fact that this time is limited tells me that God is sovereign and is able to limit that time. God has his hand on the events of history in a way that we don't always appreciate and in a way that I don't always appreciate as well, I think. Um, but we do see in this passage something of this sovereignty of God, God's hand on history restraining those forces that would seek to do harm uh, and to damage God's kingdom. So we see something of God's sovereignty. We also see something of, of, God, uh, of spiritual conflict in the midst of all of this, in which God is also restraining the various powers that are involved in this world. So I actually think in this passage, we see something of there, there is tremendous hope. We have a hope of resurrection. 
We have a hope of reward for those who are faithful. We have a hope of the return of Jesus. And we have hope in the restraining hand of God, God's sovereignty in the affairs of this world. So for me, this final chapter of Daniel, although some of it is quite impenetrable, brings me something of hope in the future and all that God will do. And I think for us as churches, as we emerge from what has been a really difficult year, um, we do have hope in a God who will return, who will raise us from the dead, who will reward those who persevere and who will restrain those powers of darkness that would seek to damage and prevent his kingdom's advance. So for me, this is a passage of hope, and I trust that you in the hub will also be a people of hope in this coming year. Amen.